Magazines and Monsters, episode 53, The Beast Must Die, from 1974. When the moon is full, the beast must die. One of you is a werewolf. You must track down the werewolf. One of these eight people is a werewolf. Can you guess which one? 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 One of these eight people will turn into a werewolf. Can you guess who it is when we stop the film for the werewolf break? See it. Solve it, but don't tell. The beast must die. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Magazines and Monsters. Uh, and this is going to be a fun one. This is a film discussion, and I have not one but two really awesome guests here. And we are going to talk about a film that, uh, for me personally, was uh, something I ran into when I was uh, very young and thought was scary. I don't think it's too scary now, but I do have a lot of nostalgia for it. And uh, both of the guests uh, that are here today do as well. And uh, let me get to introducing them. First, uh, returning to the show is a podcaster, blogger, uh, you know, a Blu-ray commentary aficionado, Rod Barnett. How are you, Rod? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you very much. Yeah, if people want to check him out, there's the Nashy cast and the Bloody Pit, uh, his you know uh, website and podcast. Check those things out. And like I said, you can uh, hear him and sometimes his partner Troy as well on uh, some uh, commentaries. Do you have any uh, cooking right now or any that just came out that you can tell us about? Uh, none that I can uh, none that I can talk about publicly, but uh, yeah, I have I am in the <laughs> currently in the process of of putting together uh, four different commentary tracks, which Ooh. by the way is is more work at one time than any than, than I really need to to do unless uh, uh, and, and there's just no way around it because you never know when that uh, when that lake is gonna dry up. Mm, yeah, you know what needs to happen is we need uh, to be able to quit our day jobs and just podcast and blog and, you know, uh, do commentaries for a living and everything would be fine with the world. I would be fine with that. <laughs> so good to have you back. And then a uh, new guest to the show, but someone I've been uh, uh, familiar with and friends with on social media for quite a few years. And uh, this guy is an author, a producer, a screenwriter, but I mostly know him as a podcaster as well. He is part of a long-running podcast called the B-Movie Cast, uh, author Nick Brown. How are you, buddy? I am doing great, and thanks for having me on the show. And uh, I'm really excited to be here and to hang out with you and Rod, too. So, uh, cool. Yeah, man. It's a, The B-Movie Cast, it, it, for anybody that doesn't know, is a, a great podcast that talks about all sorts of B-movies. I mean, older movies, newer movies. It's it's kind of uh, really stretches... Uh, uh, you know, runs the gamut of B movie films and then sometimes a movie films too. you know, some of the, the, the favorites across the years, but really good show. that has been on the air for a long time and people, if they haven't checked it out, really need to check it out. That's a, that's a good show right there. That's a, where I met people like you and Rod, uh, Richard Chamberlain, all sorts of uh, really cool people. There's a really great community, uh, based around that show. 
There is, and we appreciate everybody that listens. We just released our 500th episode. I know, right? And uh, yeah, I know, and it makes my head swim. But uh, yeah, now I'm really excited about that, and I'm excited to be on your show. So, because we're talking about the beast must die. <laughs> yeah, 1974 Amicus film, you know, not an anthology, one of their feature films, uh, The Beast Must Die. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, of course, always criticisms to be levied to any film. But I think uh, there's a couple of that, you know, if you don't look at it, you know, take your 2022 goggles off and put your 1974 goggles on. There's a lot to really enjoy and like about this film. And I do have a couple of little nitpicks, as I'm sure you guys do as well. But overall, what do you think of this one? I think it's pretty good. So uh, what do you think, Rod? Well, uh, I've gone on a strange journey with this film because when I uh, when I first saw it, probably sometime in my 20s, uh, I thought, well, it was interesting, but not particularly great. I mean, it's like I'm glad, you know, I had the, the opinion then that, well, I'm glad I've seen it. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a fan of Amicus's output, so I'm glad I've seen this, but uh, whatever. But then, as the years have gone by, I have strangely, you know, returned to it. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I did a really quick count, and I think I've bought this film on uh, one form of video or another four times, because <laughs> clearly I have a problem. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but but and of course when I watched it to, to 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 prep for this to kind of refresh myself on this I I pulled out uh, what I thought was the most recent Blu-ray and realized oh there's an even more recent Blu-ray and there it is as well so <laughs> I have a problem that has nothing to do with this film and perhaps I'll just find a therapist and talk about that with them but uh, right now I just want to say that over time. With this movie, I have gone from thinking, oh, okay, I, I, whatever, I, I see the, the standard view of this, and I kind of accede to it. Nowadays, I, uh, I got to say, on this viewing, I freaking love this movie. I mean, the, 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 we'll, we'll get into it as we go along, I'm sure, but uh, I was not prepared to feel as in love with this movie <laughs> in 2022 <laughs> as I suddenly am. How about you, Nick? Well, you know, I haven't gone through quite the uh, awkward journey of purchasing multiple copies of it that uh, Rod has, but I am going to say I do love this film. Uh, I cannot for the life of me remember when or where I first saw it, but I know in the past, since I've been uh, co-hosting the B-Movie cast, I know I've watched this film at least eight or nine times in that period so you know i'm i'm thinking about once a year give or take and i i really do enjoy it and i have a uh passion for werewolves and werewolf movies and uh this one is i i consider the 1970s to be kind of a werewolf drought and this was one of the few 70s werewolf movies that i liked and that's not really saying much because there wasn't much real competition in the seventies. I'm looking right at you werewolf on wheels. Uh, but, <laughs> but you know, that's, uh, that's neither here nor there, but I no, assume I, that uh, you're, 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 you're t trying to needle me, sir. <laughs> I, okay. Okay. Wait, 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 wait. Let me take a step back on this because you're right. <laughs> 
I don't want to to disregard the work of Paul Nashy, and I'm thinking mainstream Hollywood slash British cinema. I oh, honestly, yeah, God, yeah. did not discover the Paul Nashy films till I met Rod. So mm-hmm. you know that was that was something I'd just never seen, and. I honestly feel like they're such a different genre that I don't classify them in the same way I do the others. And that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I completely understand, mainly because uh, for, for, for no matter – there, there's no way around the fact that if you, you you think of these movies in a way – until unless you do some kind of massive reevaluation after the fact – uh, you think of these movies as you come to them. And if you're completely unaware of an entire subset of movies, um, you know, until, you know, decades after the fact, yeah, it's kind of hard to readjust your thinking about, you know, th- that particular genre without really doing some heavy lifting. So I, you know, I completely understand because where the, for the, uh, until 1980, 81, the werewolf film in uh, America was essentially, I don't want to say bastard stepchild. I, w- I would say semi forgotten and pushed to the rear of the class maybe, but uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, and I'd agree because let's face it, vampires, you slap some fake teeth and a little bit of blood around somebody and they're a vampire werewolves. You have to find a German shepherd Put a lion's mane on it. I mean, get the German Shepherd to jump around over the cameras a lot. I mean, there's so much you have to do. Oh, wait, I'm thinking of this film in particular. But mm. now it's doing doing a werewolf is tough compared to doing other monsters. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that studios, especially until you could do more lower budget, higher quality effects have steered clear of werewolves a lot more than other monster genres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're, they're expensive. That, well, well, yeah, I mean, you've got to, you've got to create a suit, you know, you've got to, you've got to find somebody willing to, you know, run around in this, you know, a mask, you know, all, there are all kinds of considerations. And also I've often wondered if um, for a lot of people, the, the, the werewolf thing, I mean, this is this is not going to be news to anybody who's thought a little bit about this. But the whole the whole werewolf thing is really just a it's a metaphor for puberty. Let's be let's be blunt. What? <laughs> somebody somebody has been watching Ginger Snaps. That's well, all I got to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, that or somebody uh, watched The Wolfman and <laughs> realized what sexual arousal has to do with things. Yeah. Okay, I'm still trying to work out, you know, how Lon Chaney was British in that. But anyway, carrying on. <laughs> <laughs> or how or how in the world he was related to the to, to Claude Rains. He was, who was clearly two feet he, shorter. So, yeah. He was adopted, it's obvious. <laughs> or mom was cheating with the milkman, but <laughs> uh, that would work, hey. <laughs> so so uh, that's I think we've uh, we've strayed from what we think of ah, the Beast Must yeah. Die, but I will just go back and say I, I really do love this film for all its cheesiness. And mm-hmm. you know, it's the best Agatha Christie black exploitation werewolf movie I've ever seen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. I would I would just add in that uh one of my favorite things about it uh is that it is it is not just kind of uh, and then there were none, 
uh, or, you know, 10 Little Indians or whatever title you want to know that story under, uh, combined with a werewolf story, you know, a werewolf story, it is also a variation on the most dangerous game. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's true. And I, I really didn't pick up on that as much until this viewing, actually. And I think that's because I recently rewatched The Most Dangerous Game. And yeah. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Which version of The Most Dangerous Game? There's only okay, 752. Let me, let, me, let me take it all the way back to the 30s. And <laughs> ah, I watched yes. that one. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. So I didn't, and you know, I, I didn't realize until very recently, too, it was uh, based on a short story as well. There Shall Be No Darkness by James Blish. Have either yeah. of you guys read that? No, uh, I, I, I've tried. Uh, I've only been able to find a, a cheap way to read the first couple of pages, but I am fascinated and now I want to seek it out. Well, I am too, because I, I, I don't know. Did either, do either of you have the Blu-ray by Severin, that edition? Yes, I do. Okay. I was going to say, because that has the director's commentary and the uh, little featurette about the, uh, with the director, mm-hmm. uh, about, you know, Paul Annette about, making the film and he talks about some of the differences because he was wishing that he had read the book before they went and shot the movie because he would have made some additional changes to the script mm. well i have yeah, to say that the, the setup of the story and, it, and it, it's a short story it's about somewhere between 40 and 50 pages long it is uh it's 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 strangely close to what you have on screen uh, minus the werewolf break, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> but it, but it has, uh, but it has a different, um, a different slant on things in general. And the most fascinating aspect of the story seems to be that uh, James Blish primarily seems to have been driven to write the story to give a scientific explanation for werewolfery. Mm. Yeah. Oh wow! Okay. Interesting. That is interesting, and that does come across in this uh, in this film because we've got you know Peter Cushing being some kind of werewolf expert with, <laughs> you know. with a very variable <laughs> accent. Oh yeah, and a, and an amazingly colorful wardrobe. But you know. <laughs> I think he has an ascot. <laughs> uh, you, you know what? It was the seventies. Everybody had an ascot, but. He wears his with style, so well, he yeah. he does he does for sure. <laughs> and you had mentioned uh, Paul Annette, that's the director here, and um, you know there's a, a screenplay, and I've never heard of this guy either. Is it Michael Winder Winder? Never heard of him. Oh, I I I did not know anything of him myself. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I hadn't heard anything of him, and listening to the director's commentary, I want to say that. Michael Winder was working at the studio at the time as something like a gaffer or uh, something Mm. of that nature. But because he had access to the studio, he wrote the script and uh, Amicus picked it up for one of for I think they had a three picture deal and they picked it up as one of the films they were going to do. Well, what's strange is if you you look at his credits, um, he worked on a lot of apparently mostly British television. We're talking about an episode of the Avengers in 67 and uh, several episodes of the saint uh, in the late sixties as well. Uh, Ace of wands. Uh, and then apparently got, got over here into the States. Well, I mean, 
the thing I should have recognized his his credit line for would be an episode of Space 1999. But wow, yeah, yeah. I mean, so you know, there, it's not as if he was, you know, he it's not as if he was a one and done kind of guy. He was a, a known screenwriter by a certain period of time, at least in television. But yeah, uh, not somebody who's who who seems to have gone much past the 70s as far as that kind of career is concerned. Yeah, and it's interesting because I'm looking at his uh, at his uh, writing credits too. Dude was all over the place. Mm-hmm. You know, he was not sticking to one. Now, you know, he did the Avengers. He did, uh, you know, Killer Force. So he had some action, some you know, sci-fi with Space 1999 and that. But yeah, he was kind of whatever. So. Yeah, interesting. He's got some pretty good TV credits there. Though. Those are some pretty good shows. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, we have, you know, uh, producers, uh, of course, uh, Max Rosenberg and Milton Sabosky, the, the the guys behind Amicus. And then, uh, uh, you know, again, you guys already mentioned, too, uh, part of the cast here, Peter Cushing. And that's always going to get me. Uh, I love Peter Cushing. He's, you know, pretty much my favorite guy for this genre. It's I've never seen a bad Peter Cushing movie due to him not being good. You know what I mean? There's there's some movies he's in that nah, they're not the greatest movie in the world, but uh, to me he even always elevates, you know, the, the biggest pile of crap. So, uh, <laughs> what what do you what do you guys think about him? I'm not going to disagree with you on that one. I think he brings he brings a certain air of professionalism and legitimacy to things that he's involved in. You know, and I mean, and he just in the 70s, especially he was just popping up in small roles in a lot of films uh, like, you know, Shockwaves, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, just out of the blue. Here he is, a Nazi living on an island with underwater zombies. Okay, (laughs) Rocket, you know, but but yeah, what do you think about uh, Cushing? Rod. Well, I, I, I honestly have never been a fan. I, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was going to say, <laughs> how could you not? Uh, first of all, how could I not be a fan of Peter Cushing? I mean, man, the, the, the man, you're right. There was something about him, no matter what the no matter what the level of the script, no matter the, the production values or the quality of the of the of the film he's involved in. Uh, when Peter Cushing is on screen, uh, things tend to snap into focus no matter what. And so he's always been somebody you can count on, uh, somebody that I, as soon as I see his name, his name in the credits, I know I'm going to be interested in seeing the movie regardless of what I end up thinking about it. And he's he's um, he's one of those he's one of those kind of warm blankets. You know, he's somebody I, I, I can feel I feel like I can draw myself next to and kind of curl up next to and know that he at least is not going to turn traitor on me. <laughs> he's, he's, he's doing a good job regardless. Uh, I, I, you know, I mean, it doesn't even matter that probably, you know, the, the first time I ever, ever saw him in something, he's playing, you know, one of the villains. I like the fact I, I, I actually kind of prefer when Peter Cushing is playing a villain. I like it when, you know, don't get me wrong. He's great as Von Helsing and all the other good guys, but it's like when he's, when he's a, a when he's kind of a despicable character, like in something like twins of evil, or when he turns really villainous in the, the hammer Frankenstein movies, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's when, that's when I'm, uh, I'm a happy guy. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He can be this weird Doctor Who character in the in the '60s for Amicus as well. But man, come on, turn turn him loose. Give him, you know, give give, give him give him a knife and a desire to kill somebody, and I'm I'm much happier. 
See, I would agree with you on that, but I tell you, my probably my favorite Peter Cushing role was when he was Doctor Sin in uh, in what oh, is Night it? Night Captain Creatures. Yeah, uh, yeah, Captain Clegg, yeah. Doctor Sin. I mean, they mm-hmm. it, you know it was whatever they wanted to call him at the time. I think he was yeah. Captain Clegg was the character, but it was based on the Doctor Sin books, mm-hmm. which yep. they called Night Creatures because of contractual obligation to release a film called Night <laughs> Creatures. But anyway, um, yeah, no, I love that because he's a swashbuckling pirate disguised as a priest, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. it really comes out (laughs) and you know he's jumping on tables and stuff and you know it's it's quite a different feel for peter cushing to me well i would just like Mm. to 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 also point out that uh, he's he's one of my favorite uh, sheriff of nottingham's and a robin hood story as well Mm. uh sort of sherwood forest yeah yeah he's uh that that's a film that's about to get a uh uh blu-ray release from uh, from indicator nice. indicator over in England. And, um, uh, I have, I have a, I have a lot of soft spots on my skull. I mean, in my heart for, uh, <laughs> very strange, very strange types of movies and Robin hood movies always, always float my boat in a very strange way. So of course I've seen him play the sheriff of Nottingham about, Oh, I don't know, eight times, <laughs> even though he only, <laughs> But yeah, I mean Peter Cushing. What 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 more can you say? I will I will just say, and I was I wasn't joking earlier. Uh, I do love Peter Cushing, but I do think that uh, one thing that uh, one one of his failings as an actor is uh, he, his ability to carry off uh, a an accent that doesn't sound like himself. Um, not the best. Uh, you mentioned earlier. <laughs> the first place I ever noticed that was, of course, you mentioned earlier. The uh, the very fun shockwaves, shockwaves, yeah. which, you know, mm-hmm. in which he's supposed to be German. And uh, sometimes he sounds German and sometimes he doesn't sound German. Yeah. And in this film, I think he's supposed to be is it I think he's supposed to be Swiss. And sometimes he sounds like Peter Cushing and sometimes he sounds like something else. So, well, and not being funny, <laughs> there's no reason they couldn't have just had him be British in this. I know. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's yeah, a lot of gravitas to being a British werewolf expert as opposed to a Swiss werewolf expert, I suppose. But well, I think a, a bit of that may be a holdover from I think that's a character name that that character was, you know, they're they're retaining that character and its background from the short story. I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Perhaps you can tell us why you arranged to have yourself shot. Certainly. Just checking the system's effectiveness. System? What system? Men popping up out of the bushes and frightening us to death? Oh, just part of my grand design. The same plan that got you all here at the same time. Why do you think I invited you? Because every one of you sitting here in this room has one thing in common. Death. You, Bennington, once you were United Nations delegate to... Two members of your grubby entourage mysteriously disappeared. There was an inquiry and I was completely exonerated. So completely that they threw you out of the diplomatic corps. Now, your part-time television personality, which I suppose makes you everybody's house guest. I don't have to take that kind of talk from you. You just did. How about our friend Maestro here? International concert pianist. Plays all over the world. Or used to. Now, there are certain European capitals where he's not welcomed anymore. Seems there were nasty killings in those cities, and always when you were playing there. 
All the victims were found with their throats torn out. Tom, if you're trying to completely ruin our weekend... And if you're trying to protect the Vina, no go. She wasn't invited because she's your friend. She's here on her own account. Because funny things happen when Davina Gilmore's in a house party, like you end up, I guess, short. Some poor man or woman, quite dead and half eaten. Tom, stop it. But you ask me to explain, and I haven't finished yet. Mr. Foote knows all about eating human flesh. Isn't that right? Paul, you went to prison for it once, didn't you, Paul? Well, somebody's been doing his homework. Still, it's no secret. I started out to be a doctor. Really? Yes, really. There were nine of us medical students involved. We each ate a piece of human flesh. Anatomical specimen. I know all that. What I don't know is why. Curiosity? Bravado? I don't know. Maybe you couldn't help yourself, but that's more Dr. Lundgren's subject. My subject is archaeology. But not your passion. Your overwhelming interest is the Luke Garou. Oh, yeah. The what? I prefer to call it Rulok. Call it what you like. The result's the same. Human flesh torn out and eaten. As one of you knows only too well. Because one of you Sitting here in this room is a werewolf. Which is interesting, because did either of you, uh, when you listen to the commentary or anything, hear what two of the characters, how they were changed from the short story? Oh, wait, no, no I don't think so. Mm. Okay, so Davina was apparently a witch in the uh, in the short story. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, so that's and that would have made her a much more interesting character, I think, because really she was mostly there just to be yelled at um in this <laughs> one. But the other one is uh is Paul Foot, the uh, you know, the guy played by uh, Tom Chadburn or Shadburn, yeah. excuse me, who mm. is he was actually the hero of the short story apparently right right he's he's kind of the point of view character from page one yeah yeah Mm, interesting so and i thought that was kind of cool but i i also do i have to go on my side comment about uh paul foot the character Mm -hmm. the reason that he was played by tom shadburn or shadbon i have a hard time with this dude's name i apologize (laughs) is apparently because barry gibb was unavailable at the time Mm. because every time i watch this film and i see him sitting in the chair with his hair all 70s blonde and in his quasi near disco suit outfit all i can think of is barry gibb that's just what i see every time well i think i did realize why they didn't choose barry gibb his hands weren't hairy enough so that's why he didn't Ah, get the role there there you go but his chest would have oh my god oh yeah I also feel like any second now the podcast is going to go off the rails because when you mention the word Davina, I think your dogs bark and go crazy. Yeah. And, and then also because uh, Rod uh, criticized uh, Peter Cushing, there's going to be like an angry mob with torches and pitchforks at his door any second now. 
<laughs> hey, I, I, I am, I'm, I refuse to be behind anyone in my praise for Peter Cushing in general. But you know, let, let's be honest. The man's, the man's one fault was that he should not have been asked to, to, to no do a, a German accent. Well, I think part of that is, uh, if you, if you've ever um, seen interviews with him or, or read a, a, a good bit about. Peter Cushing, he, he he grew up with a he grew up as a uh, with with a thick Cockney accent, and so the 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 way we hear Peter Cushing today, the way you think of him because of the way he always sounded as an actor, that's something he learned. That's something he had to change about himself. He was very open about that in interviews. Yeah. He, he he would he would slip into the Cockney to explain this to people, you know, about how to become an actor. He had to change the way he spoke, and I think that that probably factors into it being a little more difficult than average for him to maintain an accent past a certain point. Um, because he was, you know, in his mind, and he was, you know, like I said, very clear about this. And in, in his mind, he was already kind of doing an accent for most of his life. Yeah. Mm, good point. Yeah. That actually is a really good point. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But yeah, it, it, other than the, the uh, bad uh, <laughs> uh, impressions and, you know, the bad uh, different languages they're trying to do it. It's like, eh, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty much on uh, on team Cushing. But yeah, like you said, everybody, it doesn't matter how good of an actor or actress they are. They all usually have something they need to work on or something that they weren't so great at. So, no, we're not beating up on uh, Mr. Cushing here. We love him. Never, never. Yeah, never. <laughs> so, all right. Well, why don't we uh, take a peek here? I'm just going to quickly uh, go over a couple people that were in this one. Uh, you know, you mentioned we mentioned uh, Peter Cushing already. Where uh, the main man though is Calvin Lockhart. So, uh, mm-hmm. what about this guy? See, for me, I don't really know him from much else other than this. Um, I know he did do a ton of different things, but this really, this is the only thing that, like, when I think about, it, it's like, oh yeah, I remember him from that, and that's just about it for me. I mean, a couple of bit parts on television shows, maybe, but that's it. Well. Uh, I am a big fan of black exploitation cinema, mm. and so I've seen him pop up in a few things, but never anything quite as featured as The Beast Must Die, at least from what I remember. Now, that said, he played really cool. He played Deke, the Reverend O'Malley in Cotton Comes to Harlem, which is mm-hmm. just a fun little film there you know but Mm -hmm. but yeah other than that i mean i don't remember him from a lot of stuff you know uh although uh looking at his film credits he was king willie in predator Mm -hmm. 2 which (laughs) makes me want to go back because okay here's an admission i like predator 2 i know there's a lot of people that hate on that movie but i I love it. it i i really love it yeah, it's fun. It's a fun film. It's not obviously it's a big departure from the first one, but it's not. It's a fun film. Yeah, it needed a werewolf break, but, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for real. <laughs> or, well, yeah. yes, but then so did Pride and Prejudice. Let's be honest. Uh, Pride and Prejudice needed a couple of werewolf breaks. That's, <laughs> uh, I'm just saying that's. Uh, yeah. uh, but no, Calvin Lockhart is somebody who. Yeah, I primarily knew him from this, but there, I knew there was something familiar about him when I first saw this movie and then uh, two years later realized that, Oh yeah, I've seen him in, you know, Uptown Saturday, Saturday night and let's do it again. And uh, you know, uh, several, you know, several different, you know, cotton, cotton comes to Harlem. I saw years later and, and spotted him in that. But um, then, you know, prowling around when I finally got to see 
late sixties movies like the dark of the sun, which by the way, I highly recommend dark of the sun, uh, and a dandy in aspic. And by the way, I really recommend a dandy in aspic. Uh, he has roles in those as well. Uh, and, uh, he, he's one of those who was, you know, his career, uh, from, you know, from essentially the mid to late sixties all the way through, eh, I guess you would say the eighties through the nineties, maybe. I mean, because he had a, he had a pretty good run, uh, as a guest character on dynasty in the mid eighties. I mean, he was, hmm. he was working. Yeah. I mean, he, he, uh, he, he did, he did quite a bit for a little while, uh, popped up in coming to America, the, the Eddie Murphy film and wild at heart for David Lynch, which of course yeah. explains, you know, his, his, uh, his role in uh, the Twin Peaks film Fire Walk with Me as well, because mm. you know, David Lynch has a tendency to to latch onto actors and really, really uh, want to use them in different things. But uh, yeah, he's he's one of those guys who every time I see this movie, he's great. And it was I, I got I got to say this the the funny thing to me was that um, I, I I watched this uh, a few days ago for the first time with Beth. My 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 dear sweetheart, and she'd never seen the film, mm. and she, uh, and, and maybe this is part of the reason why my reaction to it was, uh, you know, so much so much different than in the past where I thought of it as okay, but she freaking loved it, and one of her favorite things about it was that she absolutely hated Lockhart's character. She oh, yeah. freaking hated tom newcliffe she despises he's he's the central character and he's a scumbag I'm like, he's mm. and she was using other words actually and i, I, I was <laughs> was very it's like i as she's saying this and as it's i'm kind of laughing about it at the time i'm thinking you know she's kind of right but i've never thought of him that way it's like to me he's this very driven character in the film but from her perspective, he's a scumbag jerk. <laughs> I'm just thinking, yeah, I guess that's, that's kind of right. I was going to say, I'm in Camp Beth on that. And I yeah. have thought that most times I've watched this. Because <laughs> what you've got here is you've got a rich guy who hmm. kidnaps people, essentially. <laughs> Basically. You know, invitation-only kidnapping. Uh, you know, he traps them on his estate tells them that one of them is a werewolf, which with the exception of the guy that's the werewolf, you got to think they're all like, this guy's bonkers and we need to get out of here. But then he, I mean, and he's abusing his wife on so many levels. You know, it's just, I mean, it's just, he is so awful. And can I just say he has two settings? It's mellow intense or yelling intense. <laughs> he is never not looking just like he's about to pop a cork at any moment. Well, you I know? think that's I think that's perfect for the character he's playing in the film because oh, it is. To, to, to his mind, he knows that once he throws that piece of information out there, he's in danger. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that whoever whoever yeah. it is, and he really doesn't know quite yet. He's putting his life on the line. I mean, as soon as he drops that piece of information out there, the, the chances of him, you know, getting bushwhacked are pretty high. Now, mm-hmm. and they, there's a few attempts at that too. Straight oh up. yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which, yeah, yeah. It's I, I got to say when when one of the characters, I think it was Paul Foot, shoots at him with a bow and arrow. 
And he's just so cavalier about it. I'm surprised he didn't just throw him in the river and be done with him right then. But <laughs> choke him to death. Yeah, it's yeah. Tom, Tom Newcliffe is one of those guys where in this movie, like Rod said, it's great. I, I, I love it because, you know, he really drives things forward and he's kind of a maniac and you don't know if he's going to get killed or kill somebody in real life. He's somebody I would recommend to go see a doctor and tell them he needs like a medical <laughs> marijuana card or something like chill out, dude. He needs to just calm down. <laughs> Yeah, he needs he needs a better hobby. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, yeah, the 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 big game hunting is clearly clearly gone too far by this point. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But what about another guy, Charles Gray? So anybody that's a big fan oh, yeah. of you know horror movies and just movies in general, you know, in the '60s and all, you're going to realize, you know, oh yeah, I know that guy. And you know, one of the movies is a, a big Hammer film that I think all three of us love. Which one would that be? Well, I'll tell you, it was from oh, it would be the, Diamonds the Are Forever. That too. But the devil rides out most yeah, importantly. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a real he's creep a, in that amazing. one. I love him. Love him in that one. Uh, he's a he's a creep in so many of the films he's in. But yeah, I do love him in that one. I mean, okay, Diamonds Are Forever, though. And uh, what was he? He was, who was it? He was also in another one as Blofeld. Uh, you Only Live Twice. No, he wasn't Blofeld. No, he, was, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, no, he, he was, was a Blofeld different character then. Yeah, oh. that's right. But, oh, man, I love that guy. And then, what is? of course, he was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. He was the expert at the beginning of that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which again, this guy, he, he had that certain look that just, you know, it always felt like he was either going to try and murder me or get me to buy into a multi-level marketing scheme. But <laughs> either one of those seemed just as likely to. Well, Charles Gray, he's one of those actors who seems to be, incredibly good at um what i what i jokingly refer to as eye acting in other words that 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 moment when he cuts his eyes to the left or the right to look at you uh that you're you should you should feel a chill run down your spine you should really Mm -hmm. be concerned that something has gone horribly wrong um there's there's um he's very good at uh being menacing uh, yeah. you, you know, you don't, yeah. you don't get, you don't get the, you don't get the tap to play Blofeld at some point as, you know, only, you know, 300 actors have been able to do, uh, but, the, <laughs> but, the, but the, the, the great thing is that he's, he's so good. He's such, he's so good at, uh, not just the menacing part, but also kind of the mysterious aspect of it. I mean, he's, he's one of the few people, uh, to, to give him credit where credit's due to, to be tapped to play Mycroft Holmes in more than one production. I mean, he's, uh, he's been the he's been Mycroft Holmes, Sherlock, Sherlock's brother, the older, smarter brother, uh, the, uh, more, more than once. I mean, he was, uh, he was in, uh, the seven percent solution, and then he got carried over into the uh, the Granada TV series of the eighties uh, to to be Mycroft in that series of television productions as well. And he's 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 a he's a very solid actor. Anytime you see him pop up, you know something good's gonna something good is at least in store. Uh, but it's it's it, his man. What a, what a career the guy had. I mean, he would go from from uh, Shakespearean productions to you know. Uh, spy films to you know the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I mean, he just seemed yeah. to be able to do just whatever, 
And uh, the thing is, I mean, he's he's quite good in this. Although uh, I, w- I will say one of the 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 holdover criticisms I will level at this movie is they it, it doesn't use Charles Gray to the extent that I wish that it kind of did. Mm. Yeah, I could I could see that, and and that's one of the problems. The film has a really really good cast. Yes, and they don't always take advantage of that cast. You know, mm-hmm. I think they used Peter Cushing pretty well because, you know, if you want to have somebody play a, uh, you know, an expert in something of the occult, uh, Peter Cushing's going to nail that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, as long as you feed him the right information. But, uh, yeah, I do think they let they let him they let Charles Gray go a little bit on what they could have used him for. Yeah. Although he does look pretty angry and annoyed constantly during dinner. And I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He plays Arthur Bennington, a uh, disgraced diplomat. That's a television uh, host now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. Good, good character. But yeah, maybe a little underused in this one. You know, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting to kind of look at these films and think, man, if they would have pulled back, maybe even a tiny bit on Calvin Lockhart's character and gave a little, you know, a couple more minutes or scenes here and there to, uh, uh, Charles Gray, maybe that would have, uh, you know, been a good thing. You never know. Well, I get the sense, and this is something that I that that I have no I have no evidence for other than just my feel for having watched the movie far too many times. But I have the feeling that <laughs> uh, that probably there were some things that were shot that kind of got trimmed out to keep to keep mm. the movie to keep the movie. Uh, you know, the movie moving forward. Uh, in other words, I suspect that there were uh, a couple of, a couple of extra scenes that got snipped out just to keep things moving that, that probably enhanced or, you know, cast kind of a shadowed vision upon some of the other characters uh, to kind of deepen them just a little bit, mm-hmm. because, you know, it, it could be argued that you don't want to spend a, a, too much time um, with each individual character um, because you want to kind of keep them mysterious and therefore kind of keep the ball in the air about who may or may not actually be this creature. But uh, th- th- you all, you, in a film, you all, you always have a tendency to overshoot and then trim back in the editing process. And I, I have the feeling that you hire Charles Gray, you probably shot more than is in this and it ends up in this film. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. But another somebody I actually did recognize when I saw this movie. Because I was a huge Bruce Lee fan when I was a little kid. So anytime <laughs> his movies are on, I was like, yes. And I was glued to the television. And so uh, I uh, recognized Marlene Clark, who plays uh, Tom's wife, Caroline Newcliffe, from Enter the Dragon as Mr. Roper's secretary. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yeah, she has like three lines in that, but she yeah. really carries it well. And she wears the largest hat of anyone in that <laughs> yes. film. I, I distinctly remember that. So, mm-hmm. oh, but yeah, no, no, she's fun now. Okay. Apparently they dubbed her voice though. Oh, really? When they shot this. Yeah. So there's at least some points when, uh, actress Annie Ross was, uh, who was a singer and an actress. She, uh, did the voice for, uh, Carolyn Newcliffe a few times. I don't know if it was through the whole thing, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's weird because it, it it sounds a lot like I'm used to her voice sounding. Well, that's uh, it. 
Yeah. Yeah. And well, and you know, one of the things I know I was, uh, I, I kind of took this opportunity to dive deep into the director's commentary. And one of the things he's talking about in it is the fact that they spent, you know, they would shoot. And one of his regrets was they had everything mic'd up and all, but generally speaking, they would go back and do looping and yeah. redo all the dialogue to make sure it was clean. And I think maybe there was some issues with looping all of her dialogue and that like she might not have been available, something of that nature. So that's why I think Ann Ross got, roped into doing some of it that I don't would think explain it, was, it yeah. yeah i don't think it was anything particular to do with her performance or her accent i think maybe uh they did that for some of the dialogue because they couldn't replace all of it that'd be my guess yeah i and the thing is i mean it's certainly not her performance i think she's very good in this and she's asked to do some very uh some very strange and, and difficult things at certain junctures in the, in the last half of the picture yeah but uh but yeah she's she's somebody uh if you've not if you've never seen uh, if you've never seen ganja and hess which was uh one of <laughs> which was a, a film that came out the year before this uh mm -hmm. it's it's not the easiest film to spot and it is very it, it is an odd film uh, when you when you realize that it, it is a very strange kind of uh, vampire film, but I do recommend it for the uh, the cinematically curious. But she's very very good in that, uh, and uh, it, she 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 did a, a lot of you know standard black exploitation stuff during the seventies. Although she's she's always every time I've seen her very good. She was a kind of regular uh, regular. Uh, I guess reoccurring character on Sanford and Son during the same period. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, she she played uh, Janet Lawson, who was a kind of romantic interest for uh, uh, the Son. Yeah, Lamont. <laughs> yeah, and then you know a lot a lot of television work there in the late seventies, and then and then uh, her her uh, her career trickled off. I suspect that she decided to go and do something else, probably primarily a lot of. Uh, um, uh, stage work because she was oh. uh, also known known for that. Um, I, I, I wanted to dig more into her background when I when I learned that uh, some of some of her younger days were spent uh, here in Tennessee. Which, yeah. uh, but I, I I can't I can't find uh, specifics on it unfortunately, and it's and that and that's a shame. But uh, you know she she was somebody who uh, you know she survived being married to Billy D Williams for three years. So good for her. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, maybe she's got a still has a couple of cases of Colt 45 at her house somewhere. <laughs> well, there's possible. Yeah, there's definitely two people I still want to mention here. And one of them is Anton Differing. Now, I think a, a lot of people when they see him would probably think of where Eagles Dare. You know, that yeah. was one of the more popular films he had been in. But one of them that I really, really love and uh, I saw uh, The Beast Must Die. Then I saw this film. Uh, you know, because, again, we're talking about, you know, uh, a lot of Hammer films here is The Man Who Could Cheat Death. That's a yes. really good one. I yeah. like that one quite a bit. No, that's a good one. And, yeah, this guy, I mean, he was, what's the best way to put it? He was kind of a professional Nazi on camera a lot of times. <laughs> a lot of yeah. military films, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but he had that good look for it. And he was German, so it wasn't like he had to really work hard to fake the accent, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah, he played uh, the security kind of expert here, uh, Pavel. You know, we'll get yeah. into what he's all about. But 
Yeah, not a huge role or anything like that, but I, yeah, yeah, I really liked him in this one. And like I said, that man who could cheat death, he was great in that. I love that one. Mm. Yeah, he's he's very good in that. He's somebody who I, I know from kind of the the weirder Euro cult end of his career, things like Seven Deaths in a Cat's Eye and Mark of the Devil Part Two, things like that. But um, he see, he seems to have been able to do lots of different things. But yeah, primarily what he was called upon to do was to play characters, you know, named. You know, Adolf or, <laughs> or, or Himmler, German soldier. Or, you know. Yeah. But, but, you know, you know, yeah. There, you know, typecasting can be good and it can be bad. And I think that he he probably ran the gamut during his career for it being both of those things. So, well, mm. you know, typecasting, if nothing else, can mean steady work. And yep. so if oh, you're yeah. not. If you're a working actor, then that then there's something to be said for that, you know. Quick, we need a Nazi. Let's call, you know, let's call <laughs> Anton Different. Okay. Yeah, at least he knew he was going to get a paycheck on a consistent basis. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and and he, you know, you were talking earlier about, uh, you know, the what was it? The uh, oh god. Uh, Charles Gray and his ability to act with his eyes. Mm-hmm. I think Anton Differing had that too in a different way because when he gets, uh, he is, I guess, the werewolf's first on screen victim yeah. in this. Oh, spoiler! But, <laughs> but he does that. It's just a really good little scene. And when the werewolf is jumping down at him, the look on his face is just, ah, you know, priceless. So. Well, mm. I, I don't want to move away from Anton Differing without uh, painting myself in a very bad light by recommending, <laughs> by recommending a movie that he was the, the male lead in in uh, 1964 uh, called Lana, Queen of the Amazons. Now, uh, I'm not going to claim it's a good movie. I am going to claim that it's entertaining if you have my illness, which is to be fascinated by Jungle Girl movies. Uh, And if you need further enticement to see Lana, Queen of the Amazons, uh, I'll just say two things. One, hey, it's 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 less than 80 minutes long, so it's not going to eat up your day. And Lana is played by Catherine Shell. So Mm. keep that in mind. Yeah, I, I may just have to. (laughs) <laughs> that, that might entice Nick with, uh, with, 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 with images of season two of Space 1999 dancing in his head. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, that's, uh, yeah, oh, God bless. That's exactly what I was thinking of, actually. <laughs> Quick, write that one down. <laughs> uh, I'm already bookmarking it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, there was one guy, too, I wanted to mention. Uh, uh, Michael Gambon, and specifically because my daughter is a huge Harry Potter fan. So <laughs> when I realized he was in this film and he was in those films, I was like, hey, uh, why don't you check this film out? It's uh, It's got uh, you know somebody from Harry Potter in it. And she's like, how old is this movie? And I'm like, <laughs> listen, I said, there's a lot of old people in Harry Potter. I know it's about, you know, young kids, but. There's there's still some people in there with uh, some uh, years on them, some, you know, a lot of tread missing from their tires. So just sit down and let's just watch this. And she's just like, I don't see anybody in this from Harry Potter. I had to point it out to her and she's looking and she's looking and she's looking and she looked at me like I'm not seeing it. I'm like, maybe not. And it's 1974, not 2004. But that's him. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Yeah. He he was he was uh, Albus Dumbledore, Dumbledore version two. So, yes. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. somebody had to replace him, so you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he was and at uh, least they didn't try and 
do that CGI resurrection oh, stuff that no. creeps me out. Yeah, <laughs> not a big fan of that. But yeah, he played Jan in this movie who was uh, on and off with uh, Davina Gilmore. And uh, I, I should have whispered that so it didn't, you know, get to your your dogs there, and they might. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. He's 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 being very calm right yeah. now. So. <laughs> well, but, Michael Gambon uh, is is one of those actors who just, my God, you look at his career, and whew. he's he's first of all, he's a very very good actor, stage trained, and just you know so much so much work and so many different kinds of things. I mean, you know. Most people are going to fixate on the the Dumbledore performance, but you know this man has played he's played Oscar Wilde. I mean, he played Philip mm-hmm. Marlowe. Well, the, the character named Philip Marlowe and the Singing Detective. Which, by the way, if you've never seen the TV mini the British TV miniseries, the Singing Detective, do yourself a favor uh, and see the Singing Detective from 1986. It is a fascinating piece of drama. And mm. he's 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 an exceptional, exceptional actor and one of those guys who, you know, as far as film and television is concerned, he kind of toiled, you know, without much, you know, popping success until later in his life. But he worked all of the time. And his list of credits is mind bendingly long. And uh, he's just he's just really good no matter no matter what he's doing. It. And he's one of those guys. What a voice guy has such a voice. Mm, yeah oh, oh absolutely yeah. yeah well and you know you talk about the fact that he's been he's still working for the most part and uh he did a tv series and it was kind of a british and i can't remember which scandinavian country co-production but it was a show called fortitude mm-hmm. and i found that on netflix and that was a really weird uh but very good show and it's about this little town in the middle of nowhere like near the arctic circle and all the weird stuff that goes on there but uh it's really good and i that's the most recent thing i remember him from and he's a pretty important character in that cool that's cool Cool. Uh, yeah i've never heard of that before cool yeah all right well anything else from you know the uh cast or uh behind the camera you guys want to mention well one okay i want to give kudos to the stunt woman because there's a scene where the werewolf jumps down and uh, it comes through a skylight and it's going to kill Pavel. And when they were filming that scene, they actually put a stunt woman in a werewolf suit and she jumped through this window (laughs) and landed in a pile of cardboard boxes. So I actually went back and rewatched that scene a couple of times. And yeah, you can see that it's not just a rag or something with some rocks in it that they threw through the window. (laughs) Wow. Hazard pay, hopefully there. (laughs) So that's, well, you know, gosh, I mean, this was an Amicus production, so I mean, at least they gave, they paid for the cardboard boxes. <laughs> I was just gonna say, yeah, I'm sure Rosenberg and Sabotsky were like, you know, yeah. here's like, you know, some chicken nuggets or something to get you through this scene <laughs> with the budget they had. <laughs> well, that's that's it, and I mean, you know, kudos to Amicus though because they made a little bit go a long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and they they really knew how to use their locations as 
features to the film. I mean, shooting there on the studio, they used the hell out of that studio, uh, Shepperton Studios, for this film. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you if you go out to where Shepperton Studios, the the studio grounds are now, hell, half of it is suburban London at this point. Wow. You know? But uh, yeah, at the time they had this huge estate that they could film on, and yeah. Yeah, I, mm. I, I, as far as the rest of the cast, I would just, uh, I would like to, to just briefly mention an uncredited member of the cast, mainly because they are simply the voice of the werewolf break. Oh, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that would be Valentine Dial. And uh, if you've never heard of Valentine Dial, I'm not surprised, but I guarantee you, you have either seen or heard his voice at the very least. Because his career was long and varied, uh, not just in the werewolf break in this film, <laughs> but the uh, the large number of credits. This man, I mean, he was in the uh, he was in uh, uh, Doctor Who back in the uh, early '80s. He was in an episode of Blackadder. Uh, he did uh, re, you know he did a part in uh, the the '80s uh, Miss Marple series. Um, uh, Sapphire and Steel in early '80s. He he played Deep Thought. In the uh, BBC adaptation of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he was in an episode. For me, he was in an episode of Blake's Seven. I know I'm I'm one of the weird ones. Sorry, mm-hmm. sorry, sorry. I like I like Blake mm-hmm. Seven. Carry on. Yeah, 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 but but we're we're Americans. I mean, it hasn't even been released on video over here in this country, so I don't know that there's that many people who actually <laughs> know what the hell we're talking about. Uh, he 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 did the voice. Uh, he wasn't on screen, but he did the voice for Count Karnstein in Lust for a Vampire, which. While not a great Hammer film, it it is a Hammer film. Uh, he, uh, <laughs> he was he he was in uh, the you know the Avengers in the sixties and uh, he, he because of his amazing voice, you'll notice that a lot of his uh, credits and some of them I don't even think are on this this listing that I'm looking at are for doing uncredited voiceover pieces. And uh, I mean, don't 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 get me wrong. He was in a lot of movies as well. I mean, you know, The Wrong Box and and uh, lots of other films like that that people listening to us might have seen. He was also in The Haunting in '63. But that voice, man, he's another one of these actors in this film with an astonishing voice. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's. I mean, voice work is great because let's be honest. You can be as ugly as sin, but if you have a great voice, you're still going to get a lot of work and make some money. So, hey, are you saying something about Valentine Dial? And I would agree with. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 not at all, not at all. (laughs) All right, well, if you guys are ready here, I'm going to jump in here and just do a quick little synopsis. It is without a doubt the greatest one sentence synopsis I've ever heard in my life. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's millionaire Tom Newcliffe, played by Calvin Lockhart, invites a group of people to spend some time in his rural English mansion, along with his wife, Caroline, played by Marlene Clark, where he reveals that one of them is a werewolf and therefore must be killed. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> there you that's, go. There, there, that's, 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 that sums it up. That's pretty close. So <laughs> why don't we just start out here? I got to be honest. Again, we we will we'll riff on the film a tiny little bit because of its shortcomings and you know low budget. But I got to be honest, the opening to this film I absolutely love. You know, there's this jazzy music and it's almost like you're in a, a helicopter and you're around. I don't know if it's like quite an island or peninsula or something. And you know, it's really cool. It's got this awesome '70s jazzy music, and then it leads right into. Uh, it looks like soldiers kind of, you know, like the most dangerous game kind of hunting a a man running around on this Island. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, the thing is, when it opens up, I mean, you know what the movie is because you're getting When the Beast Must Die. But if you mm-hmm. just came into this movie without that, I mean, you would think, okay, what is this? Is this some kind of spy movie? Is this an action adventure? What are we looking at here? And no, it's just some rich guy, you know, being a kind of a not nice person to <laughs> to a bunch of his guests. But he starts it out with that hunt. And that's just ridiculously good. I mean, and the whole th- the way it culminates when he comes running out of the woods and all the uh, hunters line up behind him and shoot him in front of his guests. Yeah, mm-hmm. what a what a not nice person. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that from the perspective of the the filmmakers, it does do something. It it does a couple of things right off the bat. Right at the beginning of the film, we're setting up the the fact that this is a film about a, a chase a hunt uh although they're they're kind of hiding the ball on exactly what 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 is going on but it also puts whether they're they're whether you're conscious of it or not and you know in the mid-70s who knows if you would have been or not it is putting the whole concept of the, the most dangerous game of human hunting front and center mm-hmm. yeah well mm-hmm. and i think one of the other things was he they did end that hunt with him being shot supposedly by uh, four of the hunters mm-hmm. right in front of all of his party guests and that is a hell of a way to in, to start off your weekend long party and mm. can, shot can, of adrenaline straight to the heart yeah yeah can i also make another observation so mm-hmm. he invites all these people that some are vaguely known to his wife. Like, I think Davina is a good friend of his wife, but pretty much mm-hmm. everybody else seems to be a stranger. Yeah. But mm-hmm. all these people were just like, oh, yes, we'll go and spend a weekend at this eccentric man's mansion in the middle of nowhere. Okay, sure. <laughs> I, You know, that just, to me, getting that invitation in the mail, I might question that a couple of times you know it reminds oh, yeah. me of, of the kind of standard you know british british story trope of the uh, of the uh, wealthy man with the with the large country estate and the the holiday you know the holiday away from the city kind of thing it just yeah. it has it has a it has the feel of that kind of thing which uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the the kind of story this is th- that's being told here is not the standard way in which that kind of setup plays out. Usually, it's a Christmas story where everyone comes out and we're all playing games and doing strange and funny <laughs> things and putting on plays to celebrate the holiday season instead of being stalked by a madman. But hey, <laughs> <laughs> I can understand. You know, there there would definitely be ways to entice these people there. But they uh, they don't go into exactly how they were enticed there. That is true. Yeah, you know, it's it just seems to me, I mean, okay, for some of them, I'm pretty sure the enticement would be, hey, we have free cocaine. Because in yeah. the 70s. <laughs> yeah, I'm you just know. thinking to myself, like, my imagination's running wild that, you know, uh, Newcliffe was dictating to one of his servants to write out invitations. And you're, you're going to come to this mansion, and it's fantastic, and there's all this great food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, yeah. I'd like for you to show up. And then at the bottom, it's, oh, yes. And P.S., there will be booger sugar. And then everybody's like, we're there, man. <laughs> <laughs> They're on the first plane out. <laughs> hey, that, well, it was the 70s, and that was just being a polite host. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. come on. <laughs> yeah, the well-stocked bar. Yeah. 
Brandy, <laughs> booger, sugar, and quaaludes. Come on, come one, come all. <laughs> come, come one, come all. And and I'm gonna say, okay, the character of Paul Foot probably would have been the one that would have been the hardest to get rid of after the weekend oh, yeah. if it had been that. <laughs> he would never leave. <laughs> yeah, because this guy just he struck me as a professional loser that would be the best way i could put it he's just like i'm just gonna wander around being being sort of apathetic drunk and i don't know <laughs> hey yeah, you're not even gonna know i'm about. here for the next two years you know yeah you know <laughs> mm-hmm. oh yeah yeah his character was very very interesting probably the most interesting and unique character of the bunch here but i and i did like you said about how they you know they're hunting him and then they act like they shoot him that's kind of wild. And then everybody, of course, thinks he has been shot. And we find out later, of course, they had blanks. But these, you know, these guests and his wife and dog don't know this. So they come blasting over to see, like, oh, my gosh, he's just been shot. And they go to him and he just starts laughing. It's like, yeah, really, really, dude, like you jackass. We thought you were shot. And OK, I'm going to throw out one more thing. Those guests. They just saw four guys shoot a man dead in cold blood. None of them went for the phone. <laughs> they all just ran over. It's like, oh, those guys are leaving. Obviously, it's safe for us to go over there. Okay. Mm, well, <laughs> I, I like, didn't notice. Oh, go ahead, Rod. Well, no, I just I, I can understand the the Cushing character moving in that direction because he's a doctor. But yeah, the rest of them. Yeah, I did notice two uh, two things this uh, rewatch right before you know, we sat down to talk about it. And one was all the guests get up and run. But if you look, one of them does not. And it's Paul Foote. He just starts kind of like slow rolling over to the porch, uh, you know, <laughs> and the rest of them ran with all this like intensity and energy. Like, oh, my God, he might be dead. And Paul Foote's just kind of walking around. And he might still have a bottle in his hand, too. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah. That, He's thinking this may be the shortest weekend country retreat I've ever been on. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> He's thinking, "Oh, there goes the booger sugar. There goes the blow. Uh, We're all, all out of here now." Or maybe <laughs> he's thinking, "Maybe I better go find the blow before the <laughs> you know. before the cops show up." Yeah. <laughs> but, oh man. Yeah, that we it, it goes right into uh, the scene where we see you know New Cliff and uh, Pavel. Uh, we said the uh, Anton Differing's character here. Uh, you know, uh, he's kind of uh, explaining or asking basically New, New Cliff to explain why he had him install all this surveillance equipment. Because as we saw in the opening scene, when the soldiers were, you know, air quotes, hunting uh, New Cliff, you know, there's cameras in the trees and microphones in the ground, all this, you know, for the time, uh, sophisticated uh, surveillance equipment. So that was a pretty interesting scene there. Yeah. And I'm going to make two comments about that. Number one what kind of hunter wants where's the sport in that <laughs> you know okay yeah you're hunting a werewolf but come on if you really want to hunt it why i mean hell why don't you just put a goat in a pen and jump <laughs> in the pen with it and say i'm hunting you now you know good well luck. i mean you know he's still got to figure out who it is and you can't put them all in a big pen you'll get sued well he did <laughs> well, it's I mean, he really big pen. Yeah, I mean, he he did a, a, a large house, uh, you know, miles from anywhere <laughs> else. I'll grant, I'll grant you that, but uh, the I think I think that uh, you know throwing them into a, a big mud pit and going, okay, one of you, he's going to turn here. Smell this wolf's bane. <laughs> I'll wait for the moon to come up. 
<laughs> smell my wolf's mane. That's the new. That's that is the that is my new favorite uh, indie rock band name. By the way, <laughs> smell my wolf's mane. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but now the and you know, but there's that and the other thing with this whole the the whole hey, I'm gonna hunt this werewolf and whatever he really does i don't know it just feels like he's just angry at everybody and so you know i'm just i'm surprised he didn't just pop a cap in everyone and say got the werewolf (laughs) i'm not i'm not surprised by that because he does seem to he does seem to be much more interested in the hunt than the kill to me to him this is this is a chase for for uh he's an he's an adventure junkie he's an adrenaline junkie this is a yeah. guy who mm, he does yeah. he does this for the thrill he you know i i get the sense and there there's a there's a there's a, a kind of a hint of this in his dialogue at one point but they but they don't really spend any time on this where and i've heard this described by other uh, other big game hunters and other uh and other venues where the idea is that the the hunt is what you know the hunt is what is the most interesting to them and then the kill itself it it kind of leaves you feeling hollow and which is why big game hunters have a tendency to you know to kind of chase that high repeatedly it's not the end point uh that you're that you're most interested in it's the chase itself and uh there's there's something that happens with a lot of big game hunters after a certain point where some they'll 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 get to a point where they'll run the chase they'll do the chase they'll do everything that needs to be and then they they will actually not take the shot knowing that they could have in other words they there are these big game hunters in the past who've gotten to the point where they they don't feel the need for that trophy at the end it's they've gotten what they wanted out of the situation and that's something that seems to be true of this man but he doesn't seem to be self-reflective enough to have gotten there yet plus let's be honest in this case he can he can talk himself into the fact that if he kills a werewolf, if he kills a murderous beast, he is doing something good in the world. So there's a justification to his desire to kill this thing. Mm. No, yeah, that's good a good point. observation. I mean, I still wonder, okay, after all is said and done, how does he plan to justify it to the police? Uh, well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah no. But but I don't know that they ever really thought that hard about any of that. So oh, I think part of this maybe I, and, and once again, this is just something maybe I've seen the movie too many times, but it's like he, he under, he honestly thinks <clears throat> that he's going to have a room full of witnesses. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. true. That's a yeah. good point. I hadn't thought about that. So, hmm. mm-hmm. yeah, that is a good point. <laughs> Unfortunately, they did all that cocaine. So I don't know how reliable <laughs> they'd be. But, <laughs> they'll all be passed out <laughs> yeah and okay let's face it if paul foot is your witness you're screwed <laughs> okay that's all i gotta say the paul <laughs> foot character is your witness oh my god just uh go ahead and confess <laughs> yeah he might not make it to court <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm, man so uh, well what about then I like to the patio scene where then he comes out a uh, new cliff and you know, uh, Caroline's there with the guests and he explains to them what's going on. I like how he kind of goes through each individual uh, guest and, you know, talks about, you know, who they are and what they're all about and basically why they are there. I like that scene too. I thought that was pretty well done. Yeah. A lot of public shaming in that scene, but <laughs> you know, 
you know, it's it's he's really setting the mood for a light and cheerful weekend. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it has the feel. It has the feel of a man who's essentially making sure that everybody else knows everyone else's dirty laundry. <laughs> Let's, you know, mm-hmm. so, yeah. by the way, this guy has eaten human flesh. You know. <laughs> And once again, Paul Foote, the most cavalier cannibal ever. His story, I mean, it doesn't seem ridiculous. You know, as a medical student, they all dared each other. And, you know, all of them did, you know, ate a piece of a corpse. And it's like, yeah, boy, I, you know, we've all been, we've all been 20. I mean, come on. Yeah, right. <laughs> hey, How big I didn't start eating about? human flesh till I was in my 30s. So, <laughs> come on. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, hey, how big of a piece are we talking here? Like the size of a fingernail? All right, I'll give it a try. Uh, so like let's, a... Can we, yeah. do, do I get to cook it up and flavor it? Wait a minute. You know. Yeah, like a whole arm? No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not making a meal of it, but a bite, uh, we'll talk. <laughs> you put some salt or on or pepper on it or something. Chicken. I'm sure it's like chicken, right? Like everything else. <laughs> yeah, that's it would have it. to be. <laughs> Only if you eat Colonel Sanders. Mm. <laughs> oh wait a minute! Wait a minute! Famously, uh, human flesh is often referred to as long pig, so maybe it tastes like pork. Mm. Yeah, I'm all right with that. That's okay. <laughs> I think we've gone down a very dark, dark <laughs> path here. So maybe we'll uh, let's talk about Davina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, her because and uh, Jan. <laughs> I love her name. But her character otherwise just seemed like a she was almost a handbag. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, sure, she's just an accessory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's she, yeah, she's she, almost she, like she, window dressing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, she hangs on to uh, oh god, who was it? Her, it was Jan, I think, yeah. was her. Uh, was her. yeah, her, mm-hmm. her main guy. Or whatever, and he was. There was that whole implication of the inappropriate relationship there between student and pupil, when because he was what a concert pianist and she was his protege. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I think she proed more of his jays than just on the piano. <laughs> <laughs> well, they yeah, did they... seem to be extraordinarily close. Yes. Yeah, yeah. They, they, he, Tom uh, Newcliffe kind of explains, yeah, that he used to be a concert pianist and he's not welcome in certain cities anymore because there are nasty killings when he was there. And he was, you know, shacked up with Davina for a while, but even kind of on her own, you know, when she's at a party, sometimes uh, people have a habit of disappearing. You know, why the police aren't really uh, investigating these people? And it's up to Tom to take care of this. I don't know. I was going to say for most of these people, it is very likely that them dying would save a lot of lives just based <laughs> yeah. on just based on the shame reveal on Tom's monologue. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like we said, we got our buddy Peter Cushing there, who's an archaeologist, but he's also uh, interested in werewolves as well. And he seems the most harmless. And uh, we uh, have Bennington, too. We said uh, Arthur Bennington, who was a, you know, like a diplomat or something like that. And then. I love uh, New Cliffs, uh, uh when he talks about him. He says two members of your grubby entourage were killed. <laughs> grubby entourage, I'm like wow, he's firing the insults already at whoever he's going to shoot. Yeah. For, for, the, the, to me, I mean, once again, some of these, some of the things that we're talking about are are taken strictly from the short story, the James Bliss short story, and some of them they alter and change around a good bit, but. Um, 
one of the one of the more interesting things to me is that the Davina character we were speaking about a minute ago, the, the Davina character, uh, the she's actually married to the the Michael Gambon character yeah. in the story, mm-hmm. and uh, they they changed that to I, I guess to kind of give it a little bit more, a little bit more. I don't know, 70s flair. I have no idea. Spice. <laughs> yeah. yeah the original so story was, in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the original story was published in 1950. And oh. uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, the, the things that I'll, I'll be honest, the, 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 st- the short story sounds very, very interesting in a lot of different ways. Uh, but the, one of the weird things that would not have worked in an adaptation such as what we're watching is that the, the the werewolf the 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 particulars of the identity are revealed early on and the bulk of the story is everybody essentially essentially trying to trying to kill the damned werewolf before it kills them mm-hmm. and in the story uh once again a carryover there the look of the the werewolf in this film is a carryover from the short story as well so the uh well, well, we'll get to that. But some of the relationships, <laughs> some of the relationships are only just uh, altered a tiny bit. So this is this is closer to the the original published work than I would I I would have honestly suspected. So interesting, yeah. Especially considering it's from the fifties or nineteen fifty. Yeah, wow, yeah. interesting. Yeah, okay. So then we do get another conversation between Newcliffe and Pavel, uh, the security guy here, and he kind of uh, laughs at the. Uh, at the fact that Newcliffe thinks there are such things as werewolves. So they have a little back and forth about that in their wall of TV room there where it's, you know, cameras everywhere and showing them what's going on. And that's interesting too. I, I do like that character, uh, Pavel quite a bit. And, uh, he doesn't make it too far here though, but <laughs> I, for, for when he's around, I really liked him quite a bit. And, uh, I do have a question about uh, his uh, exit from the movie, but we'll get there in a minute. So what about this first dinner scene? Uh, you know, Tom puts out this spread in his dining room like for a king here. And, you know, he starts going on about werewolves. And then he asks uh, Dr. Lundgren uh, or uh, Professor Lundgren, uh, Peter Cushing's character, you know, to explain some of uh, the, the particulars about werewolves and how people become them and how they change and stuff like that. What do you think of that scene, Nick? Oh, I love that scene. That's, uh, you know, and he's got and it's interesting because he's depending on professor lundgren to explain everything but at the same time professor lundgren is one of the suspected werewolves or a mm-hmm. a suspect to be the werewolf so you wonder is he going to really give the right information and you brought up the fact that in the original short story apparently there was a lot of hey let's try and scientifically explain lycanthropy Okay, and you get that feeling here, although I will say this movie has some of the more interesting takes on some of the uh, tropes of being a werewolf. So, you know, and like the one that I found most interesting was the fact that just touching silver could be fatal to the werewolf because micro particles of silver will get in their blood and blah, blah, blah. You know, mm-hmm. which, but only if Wolfsbane is nearby. What? You know, you gotta keep, <laughs> you gotta keep throwing these things out so that it can explain how you can get through that first dinner without immediately discovering the werewolf. Yeah, which I thought was fascinating, and the whole, you know, the whole plant Wolfsbane and and all that stuff does come from the story as well. 
But um, yeah, the, the the silver thing, I think to a degree, if they, I guess they must have thought if we're going to hang on to the the deadliness of silver for lycanthropes, we're going to have to find a way to kind of, you know, m- some people are going to remember that uh, you can just be clubbed to death by a silver cane and die, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's got, it, there's got to be, you know, you don't have to just shoot somebody in the heart with it, which, you know, came to be kind of a standard trope for werewolves as cinema moved forward in time. Yeah. But <clears throat> circa 1940, you know, you can have your head caved in with a silver cane head and that's going to kill you. So what, what do we do? What do we do? Well, maybe it's just touching it at all that'll that'll do you in under the right circumstances yeah and those circumstances have to be pretty specific but yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah they're which they're, which I they're think making is, a jump through it's kind of fascinating yeah. no i think they did a good job of yeah. trying to scientifically box the supernatural idea of lycanthropy now don't get me going down that road of I hate it when they do that, but I kind of <laughs> do because, you know, let's face it, turning into a werewolf is magical. Come on, guys. We all know that. And then we all know that, <laughs> hey, any kind of technology that is sufficiently advanced enough appears to be magic. So really, werewolves are cyborgs. <laughs> Yeah, sounds like a sounds like a new movie. <laughs> no, I just I don't know. I'm just I'm just going down a, a so rabbit hole here. If anybody's for... wondering who has the cocaine, <laughs> uh, that would be me, Bob. That would be me. No. Well, just to be clear, the uh, the scientific explanation in James Lish's story is absolutely fascinating. And like I say, he seems to take it taking into account we're talking about a story published in 1950. Yeah. Uh, they do not use this in the film. But I do find it fascinating. You know, they, they, you know, it's it's been twenty, you know, at that point more than twenty years. So they they decide to to update. Not, they don't just update the film by having the sophisticated, you know, tracking sensors and and uh, you know cameras and all this kind of stuff. Uh, they also update this. But I'm, I I I got to let people know about this because I think it's fascinating to a degree because Blish clearly was a creative man and thinking really hard about this kind of stuff. You get the feeling that he, he, he caught a revival screening of the Wolfman a few too many times, but the, the, the joys of this, his rational explanation for, uh, for where werewolfism turns out to be that it's a disease of the pineal gland. Uh, sufferers change shape because, and this is, I'm going to, this is a quote straight from the story. So roll with me on this one, folks. Mm-hmm. Okay. He says, protoplasm is a liquid. The pineal hormone lowers the surface tension of the cells, and at the same time, it short-circuits the sympathetic nervous system directly through the cerebral cortex by increasing the efficiency of the cerebrospinal fluid as an electrolyte beyond the limits in which it's supposed to function, unquote. In other words, technobabble ain't just a Star Trek thing, friends. (laughs) I was going to say, I want to get some of that pineal juice going. That sounds really, you know, what? (laughs) <laughs> when I hear stuff like that, I just nod and say, okay, because for all I know, that could be true. And for all I know, it could be the worst, you know, uh, conglomeration of words stuck together ever and just be complete drivel. So I just always have to just nod and go, okay, cool. <laughs> well, what I love is that he he really kind of filters stuff through this story that, that keeps it interesting. Um, you know, things like the attacks can be triggered by pollen from the monk's head family of plants, which, of course, Wolf's Bane is a part of. 
and then uh, werewolves uh, have have an allergic reaction to uh, garlic and rosemary, which kind of makes it hard mm. for them to maintain their animal shape. So they you know, the he, he throws enough interesting things out there that it feels like it could be, it kind of could be that kind of you know old home remedy that you know things discovered by people who managed to survive a werewolf attack stuff, you know, <laughs> handed down through the ages. <laughs> Well, you oh. know, if lycanthropy is that kind of disease, then there would be that kind of folklore-type remedy situation going on, because somebody's got to have it, or else yeah. it would have died out, so, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good point, absolutely. But I, and I will point out, uh, when they're at dinner and they all hold this silver candlestick to see who is the werewolf and who is not, uh, Jan is the one that uh, proposes they do that. So I found that to be interesting, especially, you know, knowing what road we're going down here. But, uh, <laughs> you know, we, we do get a, a Peter Cushingism later on as to how it was possible for whomever the werewolf is to accomplish this. There's yeah. there's a there's a couple things thrown in there to, to kind of throw you off the, the, the path. But after dinner, uh, I do like how Tom's just uh, creeping around the estate and someone who we never get to uh, see kind of tries to kill Tom and throws like an axe or hatchet at him and, uh, you know, almost uh, beheads him with a pitchfork. Uh, I yeah. do like that too, that, you know, somebody's after him and uh, we can't see who that is. Like you don't even see a shape of anyone. And he doesn't really seem to get that bothered about those attacks. I mean, he does kind of go after <laughs> no. it, but okay. Somebody, if, if I am narrowly missed by a hatchet embedding itself in a tree next to me, I would probably freak out. Oh yeah, yeah. I would need well, uh, I would need uh, some booze, some therapy. Yeah, it'd be it'd be a rough or go. Cocaine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's why he's uh, Tom Newcliffe, millionaire uh, BA, and we're not. So I mean, that's, that's true. <laughs> that may be right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did find that interesting too. But I he gets more unhinged as this movie goes on. We'll we'll definitely dive into that. But um, you know, you get more of uh, Tom and Pavel spying there. And uh, there's some interesting conversation between the two of them as well, you know, because we see everybody kind of having some drinks after dinner. And then, uh, you know, uh, Paul Foote says, all right, I'm going to go to bed. But I like as uh, he's getting ready to go to bed, uh, Peter Cushing says, so, you know, hey, you should lock your door. And he's like, oh, somebody's going to like start eating people. And he's like, yeah, kind of maybe that might happen. And Paul Foote uh, downs like probably his 20th glass of brandy and says the poor beast will get food poisoning. (laughs) I love that line. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say basted in alcohol. So. <laughs> a drunk werewolf after it eats him. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. I like that part quite a yeah. bit. But yeah, he goes he goes up to bed there. And there's a couple of scenes there where, you know, people made mention of his hairy hands. And like you're saying earlier, too, about him, you know, being a, a bearded guy and his big blonde hair flowing everywhere. So they're they're setting up uh, our buddy Paul Foot here as a, a, a huge uh, indicator like this is him. This is the werewolf. Yeah. And I'm going to, okay, this may be short circuiting things a little bit, but I'm going to ask the first time you saw it or a later viewing, if you didn't remember who was the werewolf, when the werewolf break happens, did any of you guess who the werewolf was? Go ahead, Rod. I... My, my memory is not firm because the first time I saw it, I was seeing it with friends who had, you know, at least one of whom had already seen it. Uh, but I'm going to have to, in general, no. <laughs> I'm going to have to say no because I think the movie really works hard to hide the ball. 
Yeah, I mean, I got to be honest. I don't know if I was even maybe 10 years old when I saw this. So I was probably in front of the television biting my nails watching the, the werewolf you know, go by and thinking, what's going on? I don't know who it is. It's the time's running out. So, uh, you know, don't don't include me in trying to figure out who this was. I was not even uh, of the age to try to figure that out. <laughs> well, and that's fair enough. And I mean, my thought, I, I was watching it to try and see if I could have worked it out. And mm-hmm. honestly, I don't feel like the clues were there to work mm-hmm. it out. <laughs> No, no, <laughs> no, I don't think so say, We put all the clues out. Here you go. And I, my thought on the werewolf break was they really didn't put the clues out. They just dropped that in there to be a kind of a William Castle gimmick. Yes. And, yeah. you know, and it's fine. I enjoy the gimmick. I think every movie needs a werewolf break. So. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's my understanding the werewolf break was a gimmick that was come up come up with much later in the production process after the film was yep. actually made. Oh so, yeah. Because yeah. what's his name? Paul Annette. He says, I didn't know they were going to do that. And I was kind of <laughs> chuffed about it. <laughs> he was yeah. He, wasn't, he was pissed. Yeah. He was like, I didn't do that. That was stupid. That was cheesy. And I was like, uh, yeah, maybe it was cheesy, but I still kind of like it. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I think it's fun. And I think it's interesting that that is a major marketing point of the film. You know, mm-hmm. it's like right there. Yeah. The we have a werewolf break. Oh my god, that's awesome! All werewolves get to take a break <laughs> during this film. They're unionized, yeah, I mean, they're, they're trying to mark, trying to market the film in a way as the as a detective story in which you are the detective, and it's like, yeah, yeah, but we don't have all the clues, you lunatic. <laughs> no, but that's but that is the thing. The film is kind of a mashup of an Agatha Christie story with a horror movie with the most dangerous game with black exploitation. I mean, it really hits a lot of points in a very mm-hmm. short time. And mm-hmm. God, God love Amicus because they were able to put all that together on the cheap and it doesn't look that cheap. I'm pretending like the werewolf isn't just a German shepherd in a wig. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, if if we're going to jump to a discussion of the depiction of the werewolf, uh, boy, has my attitude changed on that as well over the years. Um, But, you know, I don't know if we're, I don't know if we're ready to talk about that yet. Are we? we, Yeah. I I didn't mean to derail us there, but no, 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 you're, you're good because you figure we kind of, what we were talking about previously, it kind of leads into, you know, they spy on Paul foot for a little bit and then uh, it's the first night and, you know, uh, our buddy Newcliff, he's, you know, takes off his, uh, you know, uh, uh, fancy uh, dinner shirt and puts on this uh, leather jacket. Like he's about to go jump on a, a, a Harley and take off or something like that. And he grabs a gun and he says to Pavel, you know, Hey pal, I'm getting some sleep. I'm paying you a lot of money. You stay awake all night and watch to see if anything happens. And lo and behold, something happens. We see a camera kind of panning around inside uh, Tom's mansion here. And I always took that to mean that was the werewolf creeping around the inside of the house, looking around as if one of the guests changed into the wolf and is running around and then goes outside and trips off all the alarms. And, you know, that's when we get into the uh, the first time, you know, Tom and Pavel see there's something going on here. There really is somebody. And, you know, Tom kind of has a little slight quick uh, uh, altercation with this unseen uh, werewolf. And then, uh, like uh, you had referred to it earlier, Nick, saying how, you know, somehow the werewolf uh, finds out that Pavel is back in this little crazy uh, station here with all these uh, devices helping Newcliff. 
And it's like, well, you know, I think this will be a lot easier for me to kill Newcliff if I kill Pavel first. And then we get the scene on the uh, skylight there, right? Yeah, and okay, my thought about this is, at some level, the werewolf has to have the intelligence of the human, you know? Mm -hmm. And because it knows that it's got to take out Pavel to Mm -hmm. kind of level the playing field. Yeah. And so it does. And it's and, you know, the werewolf is very methodical in this about some of the stuff it does. It takes out the, uh, you know, the the ob- the observation equipment later. It takes out the hell or helps take out the helicopter. I mean, all these things that give New- Newcastle his advantage are just kind of taken out one by one, really leveling the playing field. The yeah, I, I love the I mean, what we're what we're what we're looking at here is the like I say, one of the, the more interesting ways in which this is a variation on the most dangerous game where he informs the person that he's hunting up front. I'm hunting you. I don't know who you are. I don't know which one of you I'm actually hunting, but I'm hunting you. And I, I one's got to one's got to expect this to amplify and, and amp up the danger for the hunter but it's also the only way he can think of to kind of draw him out. And of course, he's worked very hard. You know, Lockhart's character, Newcliffe, has worked very hard to keep this this nerve center of his surveillance equipment completely hidden. The 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 his guests do not know about this person. So the fact that that dude gets taken out quick tells you that you know the this creature's heightened senses one way or another has led him directly to the way to undercut any advantage this scumbag has and that of course it's great to see it in real time in this in the film if you can but it's really kind of one mm-hmm. of those things where you you're looking back over the course of the story and realizing oh yeah 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 let's let's do away with your biggest advantage which is modern technology right up front we're doing away with that Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a good call on that. Yeah, and I hadn't thought about it that way either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do think, for me, I wish they would not have uh, shown the werewolf yet at this point, because, you know, when it's on the skylight there and about to jump down and kill Pavel, we do get a, a, a shot like, oh, here's the werewolf. And I would have preferred it was left a little more ambiguous until later in the film. Um, so that see, and then I can definitely see that. Yeah. Yeah, and then even when yeah. uh, Tom's hunting it as well, uh, you know, it's it's supposed to be, you know, midnight or 1 a.m. And it's a little bright outside. It's not quite 1 a.m. <laughs> but... Yeah, they're not they're not hitting that day for night very well, are they? <laughs> no. Yeah, that's that's that's, again, two tiny little criticisms. You know, the, the werewolf is, uh, you know, a dog running around with like, you know, uh, an Abraham Lincoln beard glued to its bottom jaw and a wig on its head. But those two things are it, man. Otherwise, I love the film. But yeah, that's that's kind of when I really noticed that that first part there. I'm like, uh, New Cliff's out at night hunting this thing because it looks pitch dark when Pavel's at his you know little station there and watching the cameras and everything. And there's skylights there, and again, it looks like it's the dead of night. And when you switch over to Tom, it looks like it's you know maybe about five o'clock at night during the summer, six o'clock at night. Yeah. And well, I mean, I think that had to do with the practicalities of being able to film and being able to see what you were filming. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, because that's the a thing. budget. Yeah. Yeah. OK, well, I, I, I think that this is this is well more 
it's time to dive in and start talking about the design of this and, and the weird turnaround. First of all, let's let's be upfront about something right now. Several points to make about the depiction of the werewolf in this film. Yeah. Um, one, it's straight from the the source material short story. That's how the creature is described in James Blish's short story. Two, um, that was the first thing I knew about this movie before I ever saw it. <laughs> was that <laughs> it's a werewolf movie where the werewolf is just a damn dog. Um, that, that's the first thing. That, that, seriously. The Wolf. first thing I knew about this movie before I saw one second of it way back in the day. Third, that, that feeling, that disappointed feeling of that being the, re the reality of the, the monster in the film, uh, that, that disappointment is something that, immediately is carried over for most people who watch this because they're watching a werewolf film. They know it's a werewolf film, but it's not what they're expecting. It is something that is not the standard issue kind of werewolf depicted in cinema. And so I, like most people, let's, let's talk high 80%, if not high 90% of people first time viewing this film, are going to be disappointed because we don't have your standard werewolf. I mean, and don't get me wrong, as somebody who's steeped in, you know, the films of Paul Nashi, who made like 1800 werewolf movies where he never looks like a dog. Don't get me wrong, I get it. I'm looking for, in general, in my werewolves, a bipedal creature with a lot of fur on its face and the desire to rip out throats. Okay, yeah, mm -hmm. that's your standard thought process when you go down the, the werewolf road. But over the years, and this is probably part of the reason why my attitude on this film has shifted so strongly from, yeah, it's okay, to, my God, I think I love this thing. When can I marry it? Um, the the feeling I had about the wolf man or the wolf creature in this movie has shifted from, you know, I'm really happy that it is not the usual way we see a werewolf on screen. And I think that that... I, I asked Beth about that just this morning, really briefly, and she said, yeah, that's one of the things I liked about it, is it's not the usual thing. And remember, this is the first time she's ever seen the film. So maybe wow. if I hadn't been fed the standard disappointing, uh, you know, disappointing reaction or disappointed reaction about this movie when I first saw it, I would not have, I mean, I probably would have, don't get me wrong. <laughs> first time I saw this movie, I was, <laughs> I was in my 20s and, you know, in in your twenties, if it's not exactly what you wanted, then God damn it, what what are you doing to me? You know the the the, 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 <laughs> desi the desire for yeah the desire to have variation on your plate when you're in your twenties is very low. Uh, but the way I feel about it now, decades later, is yeah, you know, I'm kind of glad it's the way it is. Well, and I'm not going to disagree with you on that. I think it's it's different, if nothing else. But one thing I will point out, that when you look at the movie poster for it, right there smack dab in the middle of the moon is the image of a traditional werewolf. <laughs> you know. I thought about that. Yeah. So, you know, mm -hmm. but because that's the thing. And you, you look at that, and I'm just like, Okay, so we got. Oh wait, that's not the werewolf. Okay, so. Yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you you do anything you can to get the to get the the ticket sold, and then after you're disappointed, it's too late. We already have your money. So. 
Well, that's it. But yeah. And okay, which one of you owes it, Rod, that you own four different versions of this? So (laughs) I think they got your money multiple times. Yes, yes, they have. Oh, by the way, it says the guy who owns three different versions of the uh, movie Grizzly. Uh, (laughs) Hey, hey, I (laughs) I only own two versions of that. Well, uh, that's that's one of the jokes on the B-Movie cast. Whenever I give out prizes myself, it's usually a movie that I have multiple copies of because I've just bought a different edition of it. So, you know, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking right at you, dog soldiers. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. But I do love, too, how they really try to just uh, lump more and more, uh, you know, evidence on paul foot being the the werewolf here and that's where tom newcliffe kind of keeps going too you know he does kind of look towards jan once or twice when there's you know kind of a roll call moment of where is everybody when it's at nighttime but foot is always the uh the biggest uh the biggest uh, goon that's like oh yeah he wasn't around and he was you know laying in bed and even though he was all doped up on pills and stuff <laughs> they yeah, paul foot's really the he, he's really the tackling dummy here for uh, uh newcliffe yeah, he's the I, werewolf red herring, as it were. So. Yeah, and he and he and the actor is having so much fun. He'll just saunter into frame and kind of smile at everybody and go, "What? What's the problem?" <laughs> oh, yeah. sorry, I almost shot you with the arrow, old man. But I'll try harder next time. You know that sort of thing. Yeah, and no, I do like to again. We have another dinner scene the following night, and everybody's a little bit more on edge and a little uh, crankier. Uh, at this one here. And I think this might actually be the one where is this the dinner scene maybe where uh, Newcliffe tells them all that he's uh, removed part of their engine so they won't be going anywhere and they really get pissed off. Yeah, yeah. they get pissed <laughs> off. And and he also goes through and blows all the uh, the wolf's bane around. So he's like, OK, I'm going to make sure that if we do this silver test again, that, you know, it's going to work the way it's supposed to. Yeah. And what I think is funny there is they sort of start doing that and then everybody gets pissed off and distracted and they leave. Mm-hmm. So not everybody does the silver test the second time. Yep. Yeah. But they act like everybody did. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do think, too, isn't that the one where uh, uh, Tom's wife really gets pissed off and, you know, throws a candlestick and smashes a mirror and then Mm -hmm. like cuts herself on a a plate or something. And and she's like saying about the blood and everything. And they, they kind of have it out right there in front of the guests. Yeah. Because that's actually the bit that causes the, the whole dinner thing to break up. And so they don't finish the werewolf testing as it were. (laughs) So, (laughs) you know, which, yeah, uh, I do feel bad for his wife in this, you know, she's just, Oh yeah. uh, you know, because she's just trying to be a good host. She's trying to be a good friend. What she sees in Tom, hashtag his money, I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, the dude is just not a good human. That's, you know. No, no. Yeah, he is. He's not anything to uh, want to be like. You don't want to mimic Tom. Well, and, and there's that great scene right after the first he reveals to everybody that, you know, I'm hunting a werewolf and he's in the room with her. Oh, yeah. Bed- the bedroom. Yeah. And, and <laughs> she just says, and Paul, what if I'm the werewolf or, or Tom? What if I'm the werewolf? And he just looks at her and goes, bang. It's yeah. like, oh, okay. He yeah, he makes like that. a finger gun at her and goes, yeah. pow! 
Yep. And he does it dead serious, too. He doesn't do it like, ha-ha, isn't this funny, as if I'll shoot your ass, too. <laughs> I'm like, wow. Yeah. He, Tom's he, a freaking nut. Yeah, and the dog is. even is like, uh, get me out of here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, yeah. So good stuff, but again, they have a crazy dinner scene, but uh, here's one of my favorite parts uh, of this crazy movie is, uh, you know, then uh, we see uh, Tom has his own chopper, chopper pilot, uh, a machine gun, and, uh, you know, he's going to uh, get the chopper pilot, uh, and they're going to go uh, find the wolf with uh, the chopper. And uh, sure enough, within, like, two minutes of being in the air, he finds him, and he's blasting away, you know, with his machine gun trying to kill it. And uh, it doesn't take long for, you know, there's a, a big skirmish inside a barn. And this is one of the other things I noticed, too, that I had never noticed before with this movie. When they, when he gets into the chopper with the pilot and they take off, there's a red, like, flashing light on the top of his chopper. I'm like, did he steal a police chopper? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's whatever Amicus could rent, I'm telling you. Uh, possibly. I'm not going to say it wasn't. So. <laughs> well, I was like, holy crap, you, you just don't buy choppers that have red lights on the top of them unless you're a copper. You know, it's a, you know, life flight or something here, man. That's not how it works. They don't just give those well, out. <laughs> then again, I mean, I'm assuming it has to be a mock-up, but when they land, you know, when they land and he continues chasing the, the creature into that shed or barn on foot, mm -hmm. uh, the, the chopper doesn't last very long, but I'm going to have to assume that that was a faked up, mocked up kind of thing. Because mm -hmm. I just don't see Amicus torching a, a real helicopter. No, there's no way they would have no. burned a real helicopter. That would have been more than the budget of the film. <laughs> <laughs> probably so. And probably the uh, fuel for the chopper was more than the budget for the film. Okay. <laughs> what they really did was they called the uh, air ambulance service and they just kept calling them to come and get somebody and haul them to the doctor and they just filmed it. So that'd be smart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. So, yeah. So, like yeah, we said, there's like a barn scene and, you know, the, the uh, chopper pilot gets killed. But at some point, too, is it that same barn scene there, I think, when Tom's wife shows up with the dog and the dog gets loose and has yeah. the fight with the werewolf? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And the dog does not fare well in that fight. I mean, you know, and yeah. this is this is the typical thing in a horror movie for me. It's like, OK, kill every human you want to as brutally as you want to. That's fine. Oh, you killed the dog. I'm upset. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah, he does. You know, the dog gets bit by the werewolf or attacked, whatever, and it's laying there. It's in bad shape. And, you know, Tom, like, you know, euthanizes it. It's like, oh, man, that is a rough scene. And, I mean, they don't, yeah. you know, show the bullet going into the dog, but they do a close-up on his gun when he fires it. And I'm like, couldn't you just say, I'll take care of it, and then cut to the next scene? Do we really need to see uh, Tom basically blast this dog? Like, oh, man, that's a rough one. Yeah, and he, uh, and, you know, Davina's really broke up about this, and I mean, and it's actually important to the plot later, but, you know, she's actually got the dog in her lap and's cuddling it and petting it, and it's laying there bleeding and whimpering, and, you know, he just gets Davina and the professor to take her back to the house so he can, you know, pop a cap in the dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Oh, man. But yeah, so we, he, Tom, he goes off the deep end after this. He's just uh, waving the gun around and he's really screaming and yelling at everybody. He absolutely goes berserk after this. And they find a uh, good old Arthur Bennington dead, or at least Tom does. And he's like, you know, there's blood all over his room and handprints and everything else. That's a pretty wild scene. You know, we don't know really, it's hard to tell when that happened, but 
you know, that's yeah. at least one more person that's dead now, too. So, the, you know, the, a couple of people dead here. Now, well, the pilot, Bennington, you know, I think we got, what, three dead here now? Three yeah, dead. The helico- helicopter pilot, you know, made the gargantuan error of getting out of the helicopter. Yeah, never yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah, you should have stayed in there. Yeah, stay in that thing with it running. And if you see a werewolf come at you, just take off. Well, I don't <laughs> understand why he was on the ground at all. It's like, drop your dude off and hover. Yeah, 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 you yeah. Know, don't but, don't even land. <laughs> but yeah, don't even land. Just drop him off and hover. He can call you back. But okay, and why was the helicopter destroyed? Because uh, Tom was just shooting randomly at the werewolf. <laughs> That's while true. While it was fighting with the helicopter pilot. My thought on that is, I'm not so sure it says that the werewolf ripped out his throat. I don't know. I think Tom may have popped a cap in the helicopter. <laughs> a straight bullet. <laughs> because, you know, he was shooting at him with a machine gun from 20 feet away. I'm just saying. <laughs> Yeah, he might have actually took... It's a possibility, yeah. Took out his own pilot there. <laughs> so, right now, at that point, I honestly believe that it's Werewolf 1, Tom 1. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Well, let, let, let's be clear. In this entire film, it's uh, Werewolf, who knows? Uh, New Cliff, pretty much everybody. So. Yeah, nobody, yeah would, nobody would be in this situation if it wasn't for him setting it up. So every one of those deaths, you're right, was directly a result of him. So good job, Tom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what Jeff- what a part, what a party. Yeah, <laughs> this is why rich bastards like this cannot be allowed to have these kinds of estates and that much wealth. They're just gonna go on werewolf hunts. This is what they all want to do anyway. Okay, let's be honest. I want to go on a werewolf hunt, okay? I just don't have the resources. See, it's see, like see when I if you suddenly to... had $10 million or $20 million, guess what would eventually happen? Oh, yeah, there'd be a way. You'd be hearing about it on the news. Nick exactly. Brown's werewolf party, yeah. <laughs> Free cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So here, and they do try to, again, point the finger even more at Paul Foote because he tries to take off, and I love how he gets zapped by an electric fence. And falls out of a tree. And, of course, you know, Newcliffe was watching him the whole time and, you know, sticks a gun in his face and says, get back to the house. And they go back there. And it's like it's this is when he kind of feels like, you know, oh, we're going to have like a a Russian roulette kind of deal. But we're going to everybody's going to stick a bullet in their mouth because the silver bullets are in there. And there's no way to, you know, fake that because I guess Dr. Lundgren kind of says, hey, you know, in this day and age, you could have some kind of, uh, you know, rubber cement or something on your hands that. Yeah, the, the wouldn't silver protect, wouldn't get in. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but nobody's gonna, this is another good line, nobody's gonna varnish the inside of their mouth. <laughs> Not that he knows of anyway, at least, right? <laughs> I was gonna say, he hasn't met my dentist, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting scene, because, you know, they all start to do it, and he says, can't play favorites, and he gives one to his wife, and... If you know, it's a really quick scene, but he drops the bullet into her hand and she kind of makes a face like almost like she's in pain. But the camera quickly switches away yeah. back to Tom. And then you hear her kind of whimper and he turns around and looks at her and her hands all hairy and clawed. And he's like, what? And, you know, at the snap of a fingers, she turns into a German shepherd with a bad wig and attacks Tom. Yep. And he ends up having to kill his own wife. Yeah, that's wild. But the, the dream of every almost divorced man in the world. 
Well, but the uh, the bad side of this, though, is, but wait, she couldn't have been the werewolf because mm-hmm. she was with him the night before and when right. her, when the werewolf attacked him in the barn. And that's so, when you realize that she what must have been snipped, bit some way. Yeah, well, it was that, that night. It was that cut on her hand. Yep. Because she was petting the dog that had the that had been bit by the werewolf, so it had werewolf cooties in its blood. <laughs> and werewolf juice. That, that, yeah. that, okay, that, okay. First of all, people, that was a that was a technical medical term he just used there. So yeah, I, let's I, back I, up and explain. Yeah, the werewolf cooties. cooties. It's the big technical term. <laughs> <laughs> but now that was uh, that was how she got infected. And then, by gum, what happens next? Paul Foote gets his throat ripped out. We are just done guessing who's the werewolf now. Getting narrowed down. Yeah. So. Hey, wait a minute, though. I totally forgot. Right before this scene was the werewolf break. This is the werewolf break. Have you guessed who the werewolf is? Is it Paul Foote? Jan, Davina, Dr. Lundgren, Caroline, you have 30 seconds to give your answer. up your mind let's see if you're right oh, oh yeah that's true that's true yeah it's like the the craziest part of this movie but probably the most unique part about this movie it's you know uh it's time for a werewolf break and you know you get the the voiceover guy and uh, he says about you know there's been clues given which yeah maybe there were maybe there weren't i don't know <laughs> Uh, I'm no Sherlock Holmes, but I don't I don't remember a whole lot of clues. But well, you know, I mean, they, some some of the cast are dead, so that's some clues, right? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. It can't be Pavel. <laughs> <laughs> it can't be you know Burkhardt or whatever. It's so. not Bennington, yeah. Yeah, Bennington. <laughs> so yeah, thanks for the clues. A couple of dead people, but it's like a clock face, and it it runs off for about thirty seconds and shows who's left basically, and. Uh, yeah, that's pretty cool. And it's like, you know, if you have you have a chance to give your answer for the werewolf break here. And of course, everybody's like, well, let's see. It's one of those couple of people. <laughs> you know? Well, and here's the thing about the, the clues in the werewolf break. I think if they had known going into the film that it was going to have a werewolf break, maybe they would have put some more specific clues there. Right. But, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. You know, as as they said, it was just sort of dropped in after the fact. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, still a fun, a fun addition. Oh, to yeah. It, yeah, I agree. I agree. Oh, I agree. And it's it's unique. Yeah. So there's poor Paul Footlane there. He's dead. So the red herring is now dead. And all that's left is Jan that isn't right there in the room or dead at this point. Yeah. You know, because we, we, we have Newcliffe and we have Davina and we have uh, Professor Lundgren. Yeah. So, uh, Paul's like, or I'm sorry, Newcliffe is like, well, I got a pistol and I got one bullet left in the clip. So 
it's going to be, you know, mono e mono me versus the werewolf here. And it's a, it's an interesting scene. It doesn't last very long. What, maybe a minute? Yeah. Uh, not not very long where he goes out on the grounds and, you know, has a confrontation with the werewolf. And, you know, he winds up shooting the werewolf with the silver bullet after a little bit of a tussle. And uh, this is a part two in this movie that really kind of shocked me when I saw it. I didn't see this coming at all. He comes back to the house, you know, and you have uh, Professor Lundgren there and you have Davina there. And, uh, he actually looks at her and says, oh, you know, sorry, you know, because he basically just killed her boyfriend. And he sits down and takes his jacket off and he's been bitten. So uh, did you yep. guys what did you guys think of this part? I thought it was very appropriate and just that he ends up getting the bite. Yeah. So he's got werewolf cooties now, too. Mm-hmm. Well, to my mind, it, it I did not think this, uh, at, you know, at the time I First, first viewing, probably even second and third viewing, it's like, of course, you know, it's kind of the standard 70s downbeat ending where, you know, the the uh, the protagonist, you know, is is the, the, the curse, whatever, you know, whatever horrible thing is turned upon him at the end. It's one of those standard horror movie endings for the. I guess it started in the 60s, but definitely prevalent in the 70s, which is, you know, we're, we're going to tag you right there at the end with a uh-oh kind of thing before the end credits roll but um along with a lot of other things about this movie my my attitude toward it has changed to the point where it is one of those it's one of those things that i like kind of most about it which is you know the the movie has been pointing out the entire time that that the 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 old the old idea of you know be careful when you when you chase monsters you become them and mm-hmm. he not only has obviously become a monster in his quest to kill this creature, but now literally he has become one. And I, you know, I, I kind of, it's, a, it's another thing that I really like about the movie now. Mm-hmm. No, that's yeah. a good observation. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really good. So, you know, uh, they're all looking at him like, dude, you're going to turn into a werewolf. Like, what are you going to do? And Lundgren kind of goes for his gun. And uh, this was, this really blew my mind. Newcliff kind of like, pushes him away and is like, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And he, they show him walk into the house and he gets the rifle and, you know, he commits suicide. And it's like roll credits after, like right after you hear the gunshot, it's like, yeah. wow, a crazy ending. Yeah. For it's, real. Uh, I would, I would refer my, my, my podcasting partner, Troy Gwynn and I have often talked about the, the, the joys and despair involved in a seventies movie ending. And this is a good example. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least Davina survived. So, yeah, and she's single now looking at you, Peter Cushing. (laughs) I was just going to say, Professor Lundgren's going to be like, hey, I know all about werewolves and archaeology. She's (laughs) she's going to she's going to be in therapy for the next century. It's just. Oh, it was Mm. the 70s. They didn't have therapy. They had cocaine. I was just going to say quaaludes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you obviously couldn't see me put uh, put quotes around therapy. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so that's it. So any any final thoughts here on this one, guys? Uh, what do you think, Nick? I'm going to continue my campaign to have all films include a werewolf break. But <laughs> other than it's, that, it's, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be weird for those those chamber chamber dramas to suddenly have a werewolf show up. But, hey. uh, you know, that's just their problem. They just got to deal with it. Hey, get with the times, buddy. Werewolf breaks. <laughs> no, no. But I, I really do like this movie and I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it because I don't feel like it gets enough love. 
Mm. You know, and it was one of the last Amicus uh, films. Yeah. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I think they did they did the people that time forgot and at the Earth's core and then no wait it was the land that time, yeah, time forgot forget, yeah. the people and the last movie they did was the people that time forgot because that's when they kind of ran out of money too. So. And if you see that film, you can tell they're running out of money. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. But yeah. You know. But hey, yeah. it had Patrick Wayne. But now that's my take on it. So, how about you, Rod? Um, like I say, I, it's it's a movie that uh, I, I guess I've just kind of subconsciously loved my entire life. Evidence being that I've I've bought it far too many times for a sane human being. <laughs> um, and nowadays, I, I I guess I I I'm fully out of the closet as of now as as someone who absolutely loves this movie and I'm willing to defend it. Uh, it's it's something that I think is unique from uh, not just the 70s, but I think in werewolf cinema to a large degree. I mean, this weird combination of elements, I don't think I've seen uh, exactly before or after. I mean, you know, Agatha Christie, most dangerous game, you know, werewolf. Uh, Yeah, sure. The thing I have to admit is that, um, yeah, it has flaws. I do love it. But uh, the, the elements of it that make it work really, really well uh, I, 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 I have to admit, as I said, that it's something that I truly love and I can, I, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm, I'm honestly of the belief that this story, even if they went back to the original short story is ripe for a remake. Mm. This I'll could start be the Kickstarter right now. I'm <laughs> telling you, this could be, it, it doesn't even matter which way they decide to visualize the monster itself. This has this has the makings of a great modern day lycanthrope film. And um, there's just so much so much meat on this bone to 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 refer back to cannibalism again. Um, But the the, 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 (laughs) this is (laughs) yes, I I, I think it's I think it's good. I think that uh, there there's a really good script to be had. Uh, that could even be a little bit closer to the original short story if they wanted to, but this is uh, this is a solid piece of work, and uh, I'm I'm surprised that uh, I mean I, clearly we're uh, clearly I'm, we're not the only people who enjoy this film. I mean it's been released on Blu-ray twice, so um, <laughs> uh, one one could argue that that may be just because maybe the rights are cheap. I don't know, but it's a it's an impressive little film. Uh, one that you're not going to enjoy if uh, you just don't like 70s movies in the first place, if that period of filmmaking is not something that appeals to you. But uh, if you, man, I, there, there's something about this. I, I'm I'm really surprised at how much I enjoyed it in, in the year 2022, as opposed to, you know, 1993 or whenever I first saw it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, man. Totally agree with both you guys. It's, it's one that you got to see. I mean, if you're a fan of the horrors and werewolves and, Especially anything, you know, 70s and 60s and stuff like that. You got to get out there and see this movie. It's uh, it's pretty awesome. But OK, well, Nick, so how about if anybody wants to find you out there in the interwebs, you know, where can they look to find you? Your website? Uh, my my website's probably the best place. That is authornickbrown.com. And remember that Nick is spelled with no K because my parents were poor and they couldn't afford one. Mm-hmm. So it's <laughs> authornickbrown with no K dot com. Mm-hmm. 
And then you're on and Twitter too, aren't you? At B Movie Man, I think. At B Movie Man. I'm on Facebook at B Movie Man. And mm-hmm. of course, you can also get to me through the B Movie Cast website, which is bmoviecast.com. So come on over and check it out. I yeah. promise that we won't have a werewolf break or, unfortunately, cocaine. So. <laughs> we won't hold that against you. <laughs> so what about you, Rod? Uh, Bloody Pit, right? Uh, yeah, the uh, the blog is kind of the jumping off point for everything I do these days. Uh, well, everything I've done for, I don't know, 16, 17 years. Uh, the, uh, the Bloody Pit of Rod is the, the blog where you'll find links to just about anything and everything that I do. Uh, even even the occasional uh, odd long form essay where I rant about something ridiculous or out of the ordinary, but the uh, it's all it's all movie TV or uh, genre film related, and uh, there are the two podcasts that I do, which are the Nashy Cast, which is in its twelfth uh, or thirteenth year. I sometimes forget exactly how to count. Uh, the the Bloody Pit, which is the podcast that I do where we cover just about anything that isn't a Spanish horror film involving a werewolf. And then, uh, actually, uh, there is a third podcast I'm involved with. Mm-hmm. Uh, a British buddy of mine, uh, Adrian Smith, started the podcast Wild 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 Podcast, uh, focused on Italian genre cinema of various types. We're just wrapping up our series over there on uh, Italian crime films, Italian police and crime films from the 1970s. Uh, where uh, we've been having uh, lots of fun with those movies, and uh, uh, yeah, you can you can spot my name on the, the production credits, well, the, the commentary track credits for a number of uh, Blu-ray uh, Blu-ray releases, uh, various Paul Nashie films, some some Amanda Diasorio, like uh, Tombs of the Blind Dead, which just recently came out uh, mm-hmm. on Blu-ray finally, and we did a commentary track for that, and a bunch of other films, uh, so. I'm, I'm out there running around doing things and uh, you can find information about almost all of it on the bloody pit of rod. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely uh, hit, uh, hit that up the bloody pit of horror.blogspot.com. And then uh, yeah, Nick, your site, like you said, is uh, author Nick Brown.com and okay though. Author Nick Brown and I see Brown.com, right? Yep. That's it. So thank you for uh, pimping my stuff and thanks for having me on the show, by the way, Billy. Yeah, awesome. It was great to talk to you guys. Thanks uh, to you and Rod for coming on. Rod, uh, you know, like I said, this is your second time on. We talked about uh, a Nashi film uh, probably around this time last year. I think it was October, uh, September, August, somewhere in there. And that was a blast, too. So, yeah, thank you guys both for being on. This was great. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. Yeah, for real. This was a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. Well, all right. I'm going to step out here quick uh, for a break, and then I'll be right back to wrap up the show. Okay, everybody, that wraps up this episode. Once again, I want to thank Nick and Rod for being on the show. Two really good guys. Got a lot of cool stuff going on, so definitely check the show notes. You know, uh, they're both on uh, podcasts and uh, do some blogging. And, you know, Nick, of course, has a lot going on with some independent filmmaking as well. So, like I said, definitely check out the show notes for all the links and everything they have going on. And uh, definitely uh, throw those guys some support. So, uh, I'd appreciate it, and I know they would as well. All right, take care, everybody.